Luke chapter 3, verses 1 through 14. Verses 1 and 2. Now in the fifteenth year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip, tetrarch of Eturia, and of the region of Trachonitis, and Lysanias, the tetrarch of Abilene, Ananias and Caiaphas being the high priests, the word of God came unto John, the son of Zacharias, in the wilderness. Burkett notes, the two foregoing chapters give us an account of the birth of our Savior Christ and of John the Baptist. The evangelist now leaving the history of our blessed Savior for 18 years, namely, till he was 30 years old, the Holy Ghost having thought it fit to conceal that part of our Savior's private life from our knowledge, he begins this chapter with a relation of the Baptist's ministry, acquainting us with the time when and the place where and the doctrine which the Baptist taught. Observe 1. The time described when St. John began his public ministry, namely, when Tiberius was emperor and Ananias and Caiaphas high priests. Observe, too, in the fifteenth year of Tiberius, when the Jews were entirely under the power of Romans, who set four governors over them, called tetrarchs, so named for their ruling over a fourth part of the kingdom. From hence the Jews might have observed, had not prejudice blind their eyes, that the scepter thus being departed from Judah according to Jacob's prophecy, Genesis 49. Shiloh, or the Messiah, was now come. Again, the time when St. John began his ministry was when Annas and Caiaphas were high priests. Under the law, there were three sorts of ministers that attended the service of the temple, namely priests, Levites, and Athenians. Over these, the high priest was chief, who by God's command was to be the firstborn of Aaron's family. But how came two high priests here, seeing God never appointed but one at a time? In answer to this, say some, the power and covetousness of the Romans put in high priests at pleasure to officiate for gain. Say others, the high priest was allowed his assistant or deputy, who in case of his pollution and sickness did officiate in his place. But that which we may profitably observe from hence is this, the exactness and faithfulness of this historian St. Luke in relating the circumstances of our Savior's nativity and the Baptist's ministry, that the truth might evidently appear he is exact in recording the time. Verses 3-6 through And he came into all the country about Jordan, preaching the baptism of repentance for the remission of sins, as it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, saying, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare ye the way of the Lord. Make his path straight, every valley shall be filled, every mountain and hill shall be brought low, and the crooked shall be made straight, and the rough ways shall be made smooth, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. Burkett notes, Observe here the place where the Baptist exercised his ministry, in the wilderness of Judea, where were some cities and villages, though thinly inhabited. Note here the great humility of the Baptist in preaching in an obscure place and to a small handful of people. Jerusalem, some might think, was a fitter place for so celebrated a preacher, but God had called him to preach in the wilderness, and there he opens his commission. Learn that the most eminent of God's ministers must be content to execute their office and exercise their ministry, where God calls them. Be the place never so mean and obscure, and the people never so rude and barbarous. In the place where God, by his providence, fixes us, we must abide. 
till he that called us thither removes us thence. And this was the Baptist's case here. He leaves the wilderness at God's command and comes into more inhabited places. He came into the country about Jordan, preaching. It is not only lawful, but a necessary duty for the ministers of God to remove from one place and people to another, provided their call be clear, their way plain, the good of their souls their motive, and the glory of God their end. Observe, too, the doctrine which the Baptist preached, namely, the Baptist of repentance for the remission of sins. That is, the doctrine of baptism, which sealeth remission of sins to the party baptized. Learn hence that the preaching of the doctrine of repentance is the indispensable duty of every gospel minister. John the Baptist preached it, our Savior preached it, his apostles preached it. They went out everywhere preaching that men should repent. Till we are in a state of sinless perfection, the doctrine of repentance must be preached unto us and practiced by us. Observe 3. The motive and inducement which prompted the Baptist to this duty, which was to fill the prophecies that went before of him. As it is written in the book of prophecies, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare ye the way of the Lord, make his path straight, every valley shall be filled, etc. Where note 1. The title given to John the Baptist, a voice, a crying voice. This implies both his vehemency and earnestness, and also his freedom and boldness in delivering his message. When a minister's own heart is warmly affected with what he preaches, he may hope to affect the hearts of others. Note 2. The sum and substance of what he cried, Prepare ye the way of the Lord, etc. That is, make yourselves ready to receive the Messiah, to embrace and entertain his doctrine. As loyal subjects, when their prince is coming near their city, remove everything out of the way that may hinder his progress, all annoyances and all impediments. In like manner, the preparatory work of the gospel upon the hearts of sinners lies in pulling down mountains and filling up valleys. That is, in humbling the proud hearts of sinners, puffed up as the Pharisees were, with a conceit of their own righteousness, who would be their own saviors, and not beholden to Christ and to his free grace for salvation. Learn hence, one, that man's heart is naturally very unfit to receive and entertain the Lord Jesus Christ and his holy doctrine. We have naturally no fitness, no inclination nor disposition to believe in him or submit unto him. Two, that if ever we design to entertain Christ in our hearts, we must first prepare and make ready our hearts for the receiving and embracing of him. For though the preparation of the heart be from the Lord, yet he requires the exercise of our faculties and the use of our endeavors. He prepares our hearts by enabling us to prepare our own hearts, by getting a sight of the evil of sin and a sense of our misery without Christ, a hungering desire after him and a lively faith in him. God does not work upon man as masons work upon a stone. What he doth in us and for us, he doth it by us. He works by setting us to work. Therefore, says the Holy Baptist, prepare ye the way of the Lord, make, etc. The act of endeavor is ours. The aid and assistance is God's. Observe, lastly, the encouragement which the Baptist gives to our persons to prepare the way of the Lord. For, says he, all flesh shall see the salvation of God. That is, now is the time that all persons, Jews and Gentiles, may see the author of salvation whom God has promised to the world, and may, by faith, be made partakers of that salvation which the Messiah shall purchase for them. 
and in his gospel, tender to them. The great end of Christ's coming into the world was to purchase the salvation for all flesh willing to be saved by him. Verses 7 and 8. Then he said to the multitude that came forth to be baptized of him, O generation of vipers, who hath warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bring forth, therefore, fruits worthy of repentance, and begin not to say within yourselves, We have Abraham to our father. For I say unto you that God is able of these stones to rise up children unto Abraham. Burkett notes, St. Matthew chapter 3, 7 and 8 says that the Baptist spake these words to the Pharisees and Sadducees, whom he gives first a quick and cutting compilation, O generation of vipers, then a sharp and severe reprehension, who hath warned you to flee from the wrath to come, and last of all, a seasonable exhortation. Bring forth, therefore, fruits met for repentance. As if he had said, O ye Pharisees, and worst of men, I perceive by your coming hither somebody has alarmed you with the notice of that dreadful vengeance that is coming upon this generation, to prevent which you pretend repentance of your sins. But let me see by your actions that you are not only demure, but sincere penitence. Let me see the fruits of your repentance in the daily course of your conversation. Learn here, one, that the condition of proud Pharisees, pretending and false-hearted hypocrites, though very dangerous, yet is not hopeless and desperate, and their salvation, though the worst of men, must not be despaired of. St. John reproves them for their sins, but yet encourages their repentance. Two, that sincere repentance is not a barren thing, but does continually bring forth fruits answerable to its nature. As faith without works, so repentance without fruits is dead also. The genuine fruits of repentance are humility of heart and holiness of life. Observe lastly the cautionary direction which he gives these hypocrites not to rest in their external privileges. Think not to say within yourselves, We have Abraham to our father. Glory not in this, that you are the only visible church that God has upon earth. For God can out of the obdurate Gentile world, raise up a people to himself, take them into covenant with himself, and cast you out. Learn hence, one, that men are exceeding apt to boast of and glory in their external privileges, and to place religion most in those things wherein God places it least. How did the Jews glory in their fleshly descent from Abraham, as if God were tied to Abraham's line, and could have no people if he had not them for his people? Two, that it is a vain thing to expect exemption from the judgments of God because of outward privileges enjoyed by us. If we be not born again of the Spirit, it will avail us nothing to be born of Abraham's flesh. If Abraham's faith be not found in our hearts, it will be of no advantage to us that Abraham's blood is running in our veins. Think not to say that we have Abraham to our father. Verse 9. And now also the axe is laid unto the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, which bringeth not forth good fruit, is hewn down and cast into the fire. Burkett notes, St. John, having preached the doctrine of repentance in the foregoing verses, he backs it with a powerful argument in this verse, drawn from the certainty and severity of that judgment which should come upon them if they continued their sins. Now is the axe laid to the root of the tree. Learn, one, that it is not unsuitable for gospel preachers to press repentance and holiness of life upon their hearers, 
from arguments of terror. John does it here, and Christ elsewhere. Two, that those whose hearts are not pierced with the sword of God's word shall certainly be cut down and destroyed by the acts of his judgments. Observe farther, that forasmuch as the sin here specified is a sin of omission, every tree which bringeth not forth good fruit, as well as that which bringeth forth evil fruit, is hewn down and cast into the fire. We learn that sins of omission are certainly damning, as well as sins of commission. The neglects of duty are as dangerous and damnable as the acts of sin. Such trees as stand in God's orchard, the church, and bring forth no good fruit, are marked out as fuel for the devil's fire. Verses 10 and 11. And the people asked him, saying, What shall we do then? He answereth and saith unto them, He that has two coats, let him impart to him that hath none. And he that hath meat, let him do likewise. Burkett notes, The Baptist, having pressed his hearers to bring forth fruits met for repentance, here they inquire of him what fruits they should bring forth. He tells them first the fruits of charity and mercy. He that hath two coats, let him give to him that hath none. That is, not to be understood strictly as if the command required us to give the clothes off our back to everyone that wanted them but it directs those that have the things of this life in abundance to distribute and communicate to those that are in want. Learn hence that an extensive liberality and a diffusive charity in distributing such things as we can well spare towards the relief of others' necessities is an excellent fruit of repentance, and a good proof and evidence of the truth and sincerity of it. Let him that hath two coats impart to him that hath none. Note that the Baptist here doth not make it unlawful for a man to have two coats, but means only that he that has one coat, which his brother wants, and he at present doth not, should rather give it to him than suffer him to be in want of it, teaching us that it is not lawful to abound in those things which our brother wants when we have sufficient both to relieve his and our necessities. Verses 12 and 13. Then came also the publicans to be baptized, and said unto him, Master, what shall we do? And he said unto them, Exact no more than that which is appointed you. Burkett notes, The publicans were persons employed by the Romans to gather the tax and tribute among the Jews, who were now tributaries to the Romans, and paid them a public revenue. These publicans were great oppressors, exacting more than was the emperor's due. Therefore, we find the publicans and sinners so often joined together in the gospel. These men, inquiring what fruits of repentance they should bring forth, St. John directs them to acts of justice. Exact not, where note, one, the acts of justice and righteousness, as well as of charity and mercy, are real fruits of sincere repentance. Observe, two, John doth not condemn the office, but cautions the officers. If magistrates may impose taxes, they may doubtless appoint officers to collect those taxes. Christian charity, then, must always teach us to distinguish betwixt the calling and the crime. We must not censure any office, either in church or state, for the sake of their maladministration who are employed in that office. Verse 14. And the soldiers likewise demanded of him, saying, And what shall we do? And he said unto them, Do violence to no man neither accuse any falsely, and be content with your wages. Burkett notes, Observe here what a general resort there was to all sorts of persons to John's ministry. Pharisees, Sadducees, 
Republican soldiers. These last here inquire of him what they should do to gain acceptance with God. He answers, Do no violence, defraud no man of his own by false accusations, but be content with the allowance assigned you for your maintenance. Where it is one strongly supposed that soldiers are insolent oppressors, making no conscience or injustice, false accusation, and violent oppression. Yet, too, the office and employment of a soldier is not condemned, but regulated. He does not bid them cast away their arms, abandon war, appear no more as military men in the field, but manage their employment inoffensively. Whence we learn that in some cases, and under some circumstances, for Christians to make war is both lawful and necessary. To make a war lawful, there is required a lawful authority, a righteous cause, an honorable aim and intention, and a just and righteous manner of prosecution, without vanity or ostentation, without cruelty and oppression. Courage and compassion on the one hand, and cowardice and cruelty on the other hand, do frequently accompany one another.